Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and we're starting a two-part series today in which we will try to understand the Old Testament law in a way that many people don't. I think this is a hugely important teaching that will fill in some gaps a lot of us have that can cause us to miss out on the goodness of God's Word and become prey to false teaching and skeptical attacks. Part one of this series is from the Old Testament perspective, understanding the law the way the Jewish person would back in the day. And part two is from the New Testament perspective, understanding the law through the lens of Christ and the gospel message. I hope that this is a huge blessing to you. I'm actually really excited to be getting into this topic. The odd thing is, is that while I'm terribly excited, I realize that a lot of other people wouldn't be. <laughs> because the topic is understanding the Old Testament. And I would say that how unexcited you are equals how badly you need to hear this. Because if you are not excited about the Old Testament and about studying God's law and learning from it as a believer, then there's... Um, there's a malfunction, you know, in your appreciation of God's word. Cause I mean, we read, it says like his word is perfect. And it's like, it's like honey. It's like our daily bread and it's all these beautiful things. And then it's like, Oh, Leviticus, Oh, you know, and the groaning begins. Um, and so I think that this, this study and the, the, the series we're going to do right now, whether it's two weeks or three weeks, I'm not sure. We'll kind of see as we go, it's going to be greatly valuable um, but we're going to do it in a systematic fashion, which means that the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the Old Testament law specifically with a desire to understand what it meant to the Jewish person. Because before you can apply it anywhere else, you have to just understand its original intended audience. What was it about to the Jew? Then it will immediately clear up some of the common attacks we get against the Bible. So um, the goal of this series, um, I'm going to call this Understanding the Old Testament Law. And we're not going to be going through the entire Old Testament law, like verse by verse, line upon line. That's a valuable thing to do. But I want to give you more of a general principles so that as you're reading through it on your own, you get more out of it. Um, but what I want to do is I want to elevate your appreciation of the Old Testament law to let, by letting you see how good it is, that it really is good. It's wonderful. Um, I want you to understand it in general as it applied to the Jew. So think of this as a two-part study where first we're going to learn what it meant to the Jewish person. And then we'll say, okay, now what impact did Christ have? Um, I also want you to know how to answer people who challenge the goodness of God based on quoting out of context, Old Testament passages. And so you've had people say to you, so you're a Christian, right? And you go, yeah. So you believe the Bible, right? And you go, yeah. And you know, it's coming, you know, cause they're setting you up for something right there when they say that. And you, yeah. And they say, so you think gay people should be stoned? And you're like, how do I explain to them that that's not what any Christian thinks? And that's what I want to show you. I think all Christians intuitively know that that is not what we preach. But how do you respond in, you know, intelligently to the person who might accuse you of that? And, and you should be able to know that through this. Um, I don't think anybody should be stoned because then you're, you can't be under the influence of the Holy Spirit while you're under the influence of some drug. But Anyway, I also, another one of our goals, that was the third one. The fourth one is this, to know God's overarching purpose in giving the, in giving the Old Testament law, because it wasn't only given to govern the Jews. 
So first we'll look at why, how it was given to govern the Jews. What was it like to the Jew? Then we'll back up a step and go now in the scope of revelation, what was its ultimate purpose for? And I'll bet you have some answers already for that, that question. Um, and then the next one is to know what impact Jesus Christ had on the application of the old Testament law to believers in Jesus. What impact did he have on how we apply the old Testament law for the Gentile or perhaps for the Jew who has put their faith in Christ. And finally, to know how to read and apply the Old Testament law in your life so that you can be blessed. We should not just ignore the Old Testament law. We don't just want to approach the Old Testament and say, well, we're not under the law. We're not under the law. And that's all we know how to say. Rather, I, I want to like go, OK, well, but when I read all this about reaping and, and, and sowing and about um, say about the Levitical priesthood or from reading about the, the rules for how they, they ran their society or from reading about the 10 commandments. How do I apply this to my life as a believer? And believe it or not, I do think the new Testament has given us tools to say, here's, here's what you should do as you approach it. And it's, um, it's genuinely a lot of fun when you have these tools and when you get the idea. So we'll get there. That'll be, as we approach the end, you should be like, I got it now. You know, very excited, hopefully to dig in. So the first question is this, what is the Old Testament law? And one of the ways to define something is by describing what it's not. Right? Like, for instance, I might say, what is faith? And I'll start by saying, faith is not feeling. And then that immediately helps us clear things up, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, what, what is the Old Testament law? Well, the Old Testament law is not the introduction of moral truth to mankind. The Old Testament law is not the introduction of moral truth to mankind. It's not as though man did not know morals before the Ten Commandments were given or before the rest of the law was given. We discussed this over the past two weeks with the conscience and that how everyone has a conscience and the, the Gentiles are law unto themselves. You know, and immediately Adam and Eve, after eating the tree, they immediately knew right from wrong. There was a, a actually a lot of information about right and wrong as well as how to please God and even things like sacrifices before the Old Testament law actually showed up. So we'll talk about that. Um, the word law, as it's used in the Bible, is used in lots of different ways. And so if we're going to understand what the Old Testament law is, first we have to realize that every time the word law comes up, it doesn't always mean Moses's law or the Mosaic law or the law of Moses. In fact, these are some of the words used to refer to it. Sometimes it's just called the law. Sometimes the law of Moses, sometimes it's called the Lord's law, the book of the law. Um, these are just lots and lots of different names for the law that came through Moses that was for national Israel. But sometimes the word law is used only to describe a small little portion of the Mosaic law. And so you'll get a phrase like this, the law of burnt offering, and then it'll be a description of that law. And it's really, it's almost like saying, what's the law about the speed limit here? I'm just using it to describe a little portion of the of the Old Testament law in general. It'll talk about the law of the Nazarite. Um, there's actually a passage that says, here is the law when a man dies in a tent. And it's not a separate law. It's a little piece of the Mosaic law. And um, sometimes it's referred, it's referring to somebody else's laws entirely. For instance, in the scripture where it says the laws of the Medes and Persians said that, and it quotes their laws. So it's just the word laws being used the way we use it today. Other times it's referring to any general principle that acts on a regular basis, kind of like we say the law of gravity. It just, it, this just sort of happens all the time. So we call it a law. Um, in Job 28, 26, it says that God made a law for the rain. 
And he's just saying that there were there's there's actually operating principles in the universe that allow for evaporation, condensation, and then perspiration. I can't believe I remembered all those in order. Thank you, Ricky the Raindrop. <laughs> Precipitate perspiration? I said perspiration. Uh, he who thinks he stands, take heed. <laughs> okay. Yes, precipitation. Close enough. Close enough for government work. Um, so that's just a general law. Then in Romans 7, if you want to read with me, you can. Romans 7, 18. You're familiar with this passage, but look at the way he uses the word law. He uses it in a couple different ways, but um, in this passage in Romans 7. But but look at this. Verse 18 of, it says, For I know that in me, Paul writing here, that, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do... I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. See, it's not just his will that's acting in his life. There's something else acting in his life. If all you had was will and there was no sort of flesh sin nature, then you would only ever do what you wanted, what you chose to do. There would be nothing competing with you. So he's describing that thing that competes with your will. He says, I find then, verse 21, a law. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. Now there, law of God, he's referring to the Old Testament law. So he goes, there's a law in me fighting against the, by delight of the law of God. So it could be confusing unless you realize he's just saying there's a principle that there's part of me that wants to fight against what is good. So I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Now the law of my mind is a third use of the word law. He just means my will. So his willpower says, I'm going to speak nice words to my friend. And then the law, God's law, it says, you know, love your neighbor. And then his flesh comes up and he starts, he goes, Hey man, it's good to see you. And he goes, and his friend responds, whatever. And then his flesh is like, you know, I have my own law that I want to impose upon you. So it's any given general principle acting in your life on a regular basis. Um, so he sees this law warring against the law of his mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Another use of the word law is any sort of known command or desires of God. In fact, this is kind of important. Turn to Genesis 26 for just a moment. Because God is who he is, anything that he commands or gives to us, in a sense, his word is law. So if he's like, hey, tie your shoes, it's not just like a suggestion. It's like, I mean, I don't think God concerns himself with that, making laws about shoe tying. But still, whatever he declares automatically carries the weight and authority of the creator of the universe. So it, in a sense, it is a law. Well, in Genesis 26, 5, here we are hundreds and hundreds of years before the giving of the Mosaic law. But we read this about Abraham, God speaking, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's interesting, isn't it? What Abraham, what is it that you have that you could consider? So that it could be considered God's charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. Abraham obviously had some awareness beyond what we're, what we're con 
you know, what we clearly know about what God wanted from his life. And we see things like this. We see him offering sacrifices. Well, who told him how to do the sacrifices? Well, we see Cain and Abel offering sacrifices right from the start. So there seems to be that God communicated somehow how he was to be worshipped and things like that in general to people before the Mosaic law was given. And the Mosaic law is not God's overall will for all of mankind, but it's something it's something more specific for Israel. Um, and then another sense, the word, the way the word law is used is um, man's inner sense of morality. Romans 2.14 says that the Gentiles, when they do what's written in the law without even knowing the law, they're a law unto themselves. So there's like a, I'm, I'm like, my, my moral sense is that I'm sort of creating laws like speed limit signs about behavior in my life <laughs> unto myself. And we talked about that in detail before, so I won't, I won't get into it now. But the word law is used in that sense as well. And then finally, James 2 verse 8 talks about the law of liberty. That we should speak and judge as those who are, will be judged under the law of liberty. And we'll get into that at a later date in detail. But I just want you to know the word law is used many different ways many different ways in the Bible. So when I say the Old Testament law or the law of Moses or the Mosaic law or the law of the Lord or something, I'm referring specifically to the law that was given through Moses to Israel after they were brought out of Egypt. In fact, that's the next thing I want to talk about is when, when was the Old Testament law given? The law of Moses was given at a very specific occasion. And if you understand when it was given, then it, then it helps to understand what it was for. Abraham existed over well over 400 years before Moses showed up to lead the people out of Egypt. In fact, when you're at the end of the book of Genesis, we see Jacob and his kids and grandkids, and they're all heading into Egypt. About 70 people head into Egypt. But over 400 years goes by, and then Exodus picks up the story like, bloop, Genesis drops it off. 70 people go into Egypt. Exodus picks it up. Boom. Now we have a whole different thing. 400 plus years have gone by and the people have radically multiplied. There are a lot of Jewish people now and they're under a lot of bondage to, uh, to Pharaoh. And so now they have become, in a sense, a nation, not just a, a group of people, but like a nation of people oppressed by another nation. So, of course, you know the story. They're enslaved. Then God, using Moses and the 10 plagues, leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea and now, as soon as they're independent, they've just gotten out from under Egypt. Now, when they were in Egypt, whose laws did they obey? Pharaoh. Yeah, yeah, Pharaoh's laws, the laws of Egypt. But now that they're out from under Egypt, here's the question. It's like, hey, what are, how do we live? How should we live now? What are the rules? And so God gives them a set of national laws. The whole context of the Old Testament law is a new nation needing national laws. When America broke off from Britain, we had to write down laws. This is what you have to do if you're going to be a, a people that can get along. <laughs> there are some rules of behavior. And so that was the occasion. A nation needs laws. And most importantly, if it's God's nation and they're going to be God's special people, then they need God's laws. And his, he's telling them, here's how I want you to live. Here's how your lives ought to be run. Now, if you just understand that just for, as a starter, you're already a mile ahead of the average person, I think, when they talk about the Old Testament law, because there's zero context of any kind. And this is why certain questions come up that don't make any sense. Well, why, why this and that? You're a Christian? Yeah. Well, why, why do you wear cotton and polyester together? 
what are you talking about? Well, I heard in the Old Testament, it says you're not supposed to do that. And I kind of want to tell them, the Old Testament never said I wasn't supposed to do that. It didn't say, the Old, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, never said anything to me. Huh? What? Well, let's get into it. Um, so here they are, a new nation needing to be governed and in a way that God will be their God. And in particular, in particular, this is a real highlight of the law, is so that God not only will be their God, but he will dwell in their midst. So it's sort of like, um, you know how we have like deal breakers in relationships? You're interested in somebody and you look and you're like, I kind of like them. I think I like to get to know them a little better. And then one day they come up and they say something dumb and you're like, you know what, forget it. I'm not interested in that person. I've seen their true character reveal. You know? And you're just, ah, whatever. I'm not interested in them. But there are certain things that are deal breakers. It's kind of like if I'm going to be around you and you're going to be around me, there has to be a certain standard of behavior. God is sort of saying that to Israel. He says, I will, do, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in your very midst. I will literally have my manifest presence in the middle of your people. But there's certain deal breakers that will ruin that. And so I'm going to tell you how to conduct yourselves so that you might be a nation who has a national relationship with God, even if not an individual personal one, how we have now with the Holy Spirit, but a national relationship with God. So then it starts to make a little bit more sense. And the Old Testament law starts to take on some context. And I think, um, I think that's really helpful. We find the Old Testament law in Exodus 19, and then it just kind of goes largely all the way through the rest of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, scattered through there with different stories that come in. And then there'll, there'll be some law, there'll be story, then there'll be more law. And it's, it's not like it's just in one cute little spot. Rather, it's really spread out through all, the, all that stuff. And uh, we're not going to, like I said, go through it entirely uh, or even a, a third of it for that matter. We're, we're going to speak of it in general. But if you would turn to Exodus 19, and I want to talk about day one of the law. Here's the first day the Old Testament law was given, and we can sort of get the vibe. New nation of Israel, cross the Red Sea. Next thing God does is say, here is how you should live, Israel. Exodus 19, verse 1, it says this. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, now this was, this was audible to the people. He says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Speaking of the Red Sea crossing and, and all the plagues and the protections he gave them. Now, therefore, if, and I think that you should consider underlining the word if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. And you might underline the word then. If then, it's an if then statement. If you will do what I say and keep my, and here the word is covenant, which is why we also call the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. A covenant's a contract. It's a promise, but, but usually with contingencies, typically. A covenant's like, yeah, if. And so here's the if. If you obey, if you do what I say, then you'll be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. 
So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words, which the Lord commanded him. So he tells them the, the if then statement of God in this case, I've called you out of Egypt, but now before anything else, do you want to make this deal? This is very different than the salvation of a believer here. We're talking about a national Israel making an if, if then covenant with God. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So here's the context around the law. The next thing that happens is the law is given. Now God's like, and here's my commands. Do you want to obey everything I command and then I'll bless you? And then absolutely, we're going to obey everything you command. All right, here's everything I command. And he gives it to them as a, as a nation. Notice this about the, about the law for Israel. It was only for Israel. Gentiles were not judged by the law of Moses. They were not expected to obey the law of Moses. They were not to be forced to obey the law of Moses. It was for national Israel. Nor were they called to spread the law of Moses far and wide all over the world. It was unlike Sharia law in Islam, where they're purposely, intentionally forcing it all around the world with, at the point of a gun. And that's part of Islam. I mean, Islam teaches to do this. The Quran and the Hadith, the Quran is their holy book. The Hadiths are the extra writings, which they also consider to be holy. And in there, it tells them that they should spread Sharia law. In fact, I remember uh, watching a, um, some footage from an invasion of um, Hezbollah back in the day. This was before ISIS was big like it is. And they came in and they invaded, in, invaded uh, Beirut, I think it was. And they came in and driving through and some of the news footage had these people sticking their heads out of the truck of a car and like a 15-year-old kid with a gun in his hand yelling out, Shria, Shria, about the Sharia law. You've never seen a Jew invade a foreign country, stick their hat out of a car, swing a gun around yelling, Torah, Torah. I've just, I don't think it's ever happened because it was not part of the Jewish mandate to put these laws on every other country in the world. This was for Israel. Any more than an American tries to go over to some other country and force them to obey American laws. That's just, that's not part of the law. I don't, uh, I don't do that. That's just not part of the law. Now, if they visit our country, we say, obey our laws. You're in our country. That makes sense. But we don't go and spread it everywhere at the point of a gun. And Israel didn't do that and wasn't called to do that. However, Islam, for instance, the Quran teaches it, the Hadith teach it. Uh, Muhammad exampled it. He did this physically, killed people and forced Sharia law. And then uh, Muslims teach it and do it. And you, you don't have all you have to do is turn on the news, you know, to see it happening now. The Jews were not to force the law on anybody else. They were simply to obey it. That was their call. Obey it just like the citizen of any country. The only difference between them and us as far as being a citizen of a country is that these laws were God-given. That's pretty amazing. God picked one national group and he gave us the reasons because they were small and insignificant. Because <laughs> he wanted to show his power. So he didn't pick the Jewish people because they were so wonderful and so grand. It was because they were small and insignificant, he says. And he wanted to show his power through weak, weak people. That, that's encouraging, isn't it? And so then he calls them up and he uses them. Well, he gives them these laws and he says, look, you're going to be my special people. You're going to be like a beacon of light showing, showing me to the world through these things. 
that's a pretty amazing thing. And that alone should really excite you about the Old Testament law. God picked the nation and said, here's how you'll run. Here's how you'll operate. Now you can divide the law into categories, loosely into categories. I want to be careful when I say this because these categories are not cut and dry in every case and they're not even perfectly sectioned off. But I think the three categories would be the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. So Moses's law, there's obviously laws that are just purely moral in nature. Don't lie. Don't murder. Then there are some which are very civil in nature. And there are some which are very ceremonial or religious in nature. So I want to talk just for a minute about these different sort of categories. So that as you're reading the Old Testament law, it kind of jumps out at you that this, oh, this is this kind of law. And it makes it a little bit easier for you then to understand. The moral laws are uh, obviously chiefly found in the Ten Commandments. That's in Exodus 20, as well as Deuteronomy 5. And the first four of the Ten Commandments, some of you guys know what I'm about to say. They deal with man's relationship with God. And the last six of those Ten Commandments deal with man's relationship with each other. Yeah. And so we have um, these Ten Commandments. I think it's worth taking a little bit of time to move through them slightly more slowly. So if you would turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we'll look at verse starting in verse 1. And while you're on your way there, um, does anybody have any questions so far just about anything that's been said? For better comprehension or clarity? Whenever I get no questions, I just pretend it's because I'm a good teacher. <laughs> or everyone's confused. I'm going to go with the good teacher one because it feels better. Um, so Exodus 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's numero uno. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, the phrase there means before my face, but it's a Hebrew idiom for besides me or in addition to me. So it's not as though they could have other gods as long as God was a bigger God than the other gods. This is clearly not what the Bible teaches. It's not what it means, you know, in its original language. Um, no, this is monotheism. It is not religious pluralism, which is a thought, for instance, that like, let's say that I meet my buddy who's he's Hindu. And I'm like, hey, man, if that works for you, then that's good for you. Now, this is a great way to make friends and influence people. But it's also totally delusional. If I'm a Christian, I believe there is one God and that my friend who's Hindu, who's my friend, is worshiping a fake God or gods. And the most loving thing I could do is try and reason with them patiently and try to help bring them out of that sort of weirdness. Judaism was totally monotheistic. God's like, there are no other gods. In fact, Genesis 1 is largely about saying, hey, guys, in the beginning, God created everything. And he's uncreated. That set him entirely apart from all the pagan gods. So this first commandment is like, God, there's only one God. And you shall only have him as your God. This is very important. This one commandment right here immediately blows out of the water the existence of things like Mormonism, which is a polytheistic religion, even though they only worship one God, but they believe in the existence of many, 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 many gods, including gods that are superior to God who created uh, us. And um, uh, craziness, craziness. But, but this obviously is inconsistent 
with uh, with that first commandment. So you shall have no other gods before me. The second, it says, you shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So yeah, sins of the parents affect and impact the, the children. I think this is obvious if anybody who's lived long enough to see, yeah, sins of the parents affect their children. Uh, but yeah, the third or fourth generation, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this is interesting because this is the, the um, prohibition against idolatry. Creating an idol. Now, you might say, does he mean like you can't make a statue like a little G.I. Joe character and play with it? Specifically, it's one command. You shall not make the image of anything and bow down and worship it. You shall not be using images as acts, as objects of worship or praise. That's the concept. That's the idea. I have to say it's very interesting that the Lutheran and Catholic list of Ten Commandments leaves this out. Believe it or not, the list of Lutheran and Catholic Ten Commandments is the same. Their first commandment is this. I'm the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Their second commandment is this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, the way they still get Ten Commandments is they divide the Tenth Commandment against coveting into two commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and then nine, and then ten. You shall not covet uh, his goods. Probably didn't notice. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And I, I mean, I did, I double and triple checked that information because it shocked me so much when I heard it. I was like, no, you're kidding me. But it makes a lot of sense when you realize that um, in Catholicism, there's a great emphasis on creating what what looks and is treated very much like idols. They don't they, they don't like to use the word worship. They say venerate and they don't like the word idol. They say icon. But I would say it looks and is treated very much like idols. And I think that that's why the these uh, those aren't that's not included. But it was considered by the Jews to be one of the commandments again was against idolatry. And God took it pretty, pretty seriously. Um, so if you were a Jew, you would you would definitely think that it's wrong to make carved images and utilize them in some fashion in your worship, directing your worship at them or something like that. And that, that's why it's, it can be a little bit odd if we put like, say, let's say that we put a cross or even a dove up here on the wall. And as you're worshiping, you start to notice that you're like directing your worship attention at the dove. You know, you're directing your worship attention at the cross. And I would say that you need to be very cautious. Idols are typically used to substitute a lack of relationship with God. So get back to the Lord. Get back to our invisible, all-powerful, omnipresent God. Because any image is a mockery compared to him. And he actually mocks <laughs> the making of images several times in the scripture. So, Verse 7 then says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So God's name is holy. And then he says, the, the next one is about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then there's sort of a description of how they're to do that. Six days you shall labor, labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor a stranger who is within your gates. 
For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so the Sabbath is, is, is one of these 10 commandments, you know, of a huge deal to the, to the Hebrews. And these 10 were, were on stones. They were unlike the rest of the commandments given on paper at, at a different, at a different time. Even the first thing was 10 commandments brought down at once. Here's the beginning of the law. So to the Jew, these things are hugely important. Um, and to violate one of these would be the death penalty. There would be many Sabbath rules to come, but over, I, overall, the idea of the Sabbath for the Jew is to, to keep it holy and to rest, not to work and not to cause anybody else to work. That's interesting. Those who do keep the Sabbath usually just keep the Sabbath for themselves in the sense of having a day of rest. And then they go to church or something like that, but they cause other people to work I think often, especially, well, I don't know about you, but when you come to church, it causes me to work. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, so uh, verse 12, honor your father and your mother and that your days may be long upon the land, which the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, notice the word honor, not just obey, not just obey, but actually honor. There's a, supposed to be a sense of honor and dignity. Um, you shall not murder. There is a difference between killing and murdering. This is not a prohibition against any kind of killing. It's not a, a pacifism. It, it, even the Hebrew word there, it means murder. Murder is defined as unjust killing. And so um, we'll get into when a killing was considered appropriate a little bit later on. So you shall not commit adultery, which kept marriage holy. And you shall not steal, which uh, would stop theft. Can you imagine a society that actually follows these laws? Imagine if there was no theft. How much money would we save on things like insurance? Imagine if like the next one, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. If you knew that if you were in a car accident with somebody that whoever's fault it was, they would just be honest about it. You wouldn't even need insurance. Certainly not as much. Because they'd be like, yeah, it was my fault. I know that's how I am. I've been pulled over by the police. You know what I pulled you up for? Yeah, I was on my phone. Sorry. You're right. I deserve it. I get the funniest looks from the cops. <laughs> I'm just honest with them. I don't know. No, officer, I don't even know what you're talking about. I... You don't, don't lie, right? Don't bear false witness against your, your neighbor. Now, this is specifically about lying about others to their harm, bearing false witness against your neighbor. It's not actually thou shalt not lie. It's a little different than that. It's it's bearing false witness against your neighbor to their harm. That doesn't mean lying is okay, but we should just be clear on what this is saying. And then finally, um, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet his wife, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's not to covet. Now, this is something that I think um, uh, is especially interesting. Paul later on writes about this. He goes, I wouldn't have known not to covet until the law said don't covet. And then I realized I'm kind of messed up, you know, based I'm giving my paraphrase version. We'll get into there more, more later, but some of these things might seem very obvious and other ones might not seem quite as obvious, but God was giving the people his laws. And these laws are all grounded in who God is. He starts off in the beginning of Exodus 20. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt of the house of bondage. And he's like, he anticipates the, why should I do this question before they ask it? I'm God. How many of you uh, parents, you, you, you actually answered because I'm your mom, because I'm your dad. 
because you just were tired of all the whys. I think that that's actually kind of a biblical thing to teach your kids. It is okay for me to say this and you to do it because I'm the parent. God does that all the time and you're sort of helping prepare them for a sense of obedience to God, even if they don't fully understand the scenario. It's not fun. It's not easy to swallow it. But he does it over and over again. Look at how many times, like in Exodus especially, where he tells them to do something and then he's just like, you shall this, 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 this. And then he just goes randomly, I am the Lord. He says it over and over again. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And that's like the justification. Now, what's cool about this to me is that, and this is what I love about Christianity, the bold rationality of it, that obedience to these commands is based on God's nature. Why should I do the things that God says I should do? Because he's God. It's the only reason that we have for objective morality is the very nature of God. And so it's pretty cool that that's consistent through the scripture. Um, so those are some of the moral laws. Now the moral laws not only revealed there, it's actually in several other places. And you can see how, for instance, the Sabbath rest, um, it, it's, it's in a sense, a moral law, but in other sense, it seems like, a, like a ceremonial law. And then it has all these little details that end up, you know, moving over to civil law. So you can't exactly separate it all. Well, civil laws, though, deal, I think more, they tend to focus on social life and Exodus 21 through 24, 11, they, that, that's going to talk about a lot of the civil laws also in Deuteronomy and Leviticus number, Leviticus numbers. Um, you'll, you'll get a lot of this stuff. Some of these laws, they may seem somewhat arbitrary, but even an arbitrary law, once it's given is radically important. And that might sound silly, but think about it this way. Once we've decided that you have to drive on the right side of the road, isn't it really important that you do it? This is an arbitrary law. It doesn't matter which side of the road you drive on, but yet a nation needs to have a decision made so that we might stay safe. So some of the laws might seem arbitrary, but then it's very important that they're obeyed for two reasons, for the safety of the people, as well as simply because it is now a violation of the law and violating the law is in and of itself an issue. So these laws had more than one purpose. Um, partially, it's just how Jewish society is supposed to function. I mean, they need a set of shared standards, just like we need a set of shared standards. Red has to mean stop, green has to mean go, or blue can mean stop and purple can mean go, as long as we all agree that something means stop and something means go. But it also made it a just society, a fair society. It limited inhuman, inhumane behavior towards women, towards children, towards slaves, towards neighbors, and even towards strangers. The human rights of people were radically elevated in Jewish society because of the civil laws that were given by God. And they did not read it the way we often do. We often open the Old Testament and we read a random spot and, and then we're like, okay, like here's one of the laws. Like, oh, oh gosh, what do I do? You know, I don't know. I think that one doesn't apply to me. And then I look another one and I find that and go, okay, that one, I think I'm going to, I like that. I'm going to do that. To the Jew, every single one was binding. There's like some 613 laws in the Old Testament law and they were all totally binding. And to the, to the Jew, it was silly to think that you could take one and obey it and ignore another. That was just like ridiculous. Imagine doing this with American laws. You know what? I, I appreciate your speeding laws, but, but your laws about child abuse, I don't respect at all. <laughs> You're going to jail, buddy. <laughs> you can't just pick and choose which laws you like. So this is why in the New Testament, we look back at the law and we see um, strong chastening against people who would say, 
I want to obey some of the Old Testament laws, but then disobey others. But I'll hold the ones I obey over your head and say, the law says you have to do this. And now you have to do it. But others, I'm just going to disobey and be like, yeah, that doesn't count. The inconsistency of that would like make a, a, a good Jewish person just like barf in their hat, I think, because it's, it's crazy. It's crazy thinking to think that you can just cut and paste the Old Testament law. So let's, let's look at an example of some of these uh, laws. Exodus 21, verse 12. Exodus 21, 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So a life for a life. Uh, if, if someone murders, they get the death penalty. We were told thou shalt not murder. Well, here we're told what happens if you do. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. That would be the city of refuge that is actually talked about in, in, uh, in the Levitical, the Levitical laws or the laws relating to Levites. They were to have a city in each territory and they, the manslaughter person could go there. Now, what does it mean if God delivered him into his hand? Well, this is a way, especially to a, a Jew of saying, like, it was an accident, and so they go, well, in a sense, there are no real accidents. So we just go, God, you're in this, but what's this person going to do? Because there's a tradition at the time that the avenger of blood, a relative of the guy that died would come and kill you to get, and then you, of course, would then have a family member that wants to come and kill that guy. And then you get family feud going on the gory kind. So let's suppose that I'm driving down the street and a drunk guy wanders out between two cars and I don't, I can't stop in time and I hit him and then he dies. I struck a man so that he died, but there was no premonition. There was a premeditation or premonition, um, against my neighbor to kill him by treachery. Right. I didn't do that. I, it's like, God, this was such a weird coincidence. It was manslaughter. It was not murder. And so then I would flee to the city of refuge, stay there until the high priest died. And then I could be delivered back. And, uh, as long as I stayed in the borders of the city of refuge, the avenger of blood, the family member of the other person wouldn't, wasn't allowed to hurt me. And if he tried, then he would be under the death penalty. So, um, we can get more into that some other time, but th that is in itself a picture of Christ, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So verse uh, 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. It was natural for people to run into just like they do to the church for sanctuary. They would go to the altar and they grab the horns of the altar. It, it's just basically the corners, the edges of the altar. There was these, they called them horns. They weren't like, it wasn't an animal's horn, but you know, it was like a, a, a jutted out part of the altar and they grab and hold on to it. And they were like, mercy, 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 grace, grace, grace. And so God's saying, look, if they were premeditated murderers and they're running for mercy and grace, go and kill them. So this is, this is just hands down. There's no 10 years on death row. This is like, this is how it was handled. Now, um, this death penalty was carried out. We find from other laws with actual, a court case and witnesses that would be brought and they had to have eyewitnesses. There had to be two or three eyewitnesses. There had to be evidence. How do you know it was premeditated? Well, he was lying in wait. He brought the weapon with him. He had already dug the grave. There was, there was evidence for these things. And so then they, they would say, okay, fine. And you know what? The witnesses, you'll take him to the edge of the town. They'll lay their hands on him saying, here, your sin is upon you. And the, and the people who accusing, are accusing him have to throw the first stone. That's interesting, huh? They had to start it out. Now, why is that? Because they're so brutal? No, because that's so hard. That's why. Because that's so hard. 
you don't get uh, the, the false accusations as much when you have them having to be so involved with the process. Uh, and so verse uh, 15, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If somebody uh, attacked physically their parent, they were to be put to death. Now, I know in our culture, we're like, we'd be killing a lot of kids. Um, this is how, well, to be honest, that's how messed up our culture is. That's how far we have fallen. This should not be normal to think that a, a kid would attack their parent. That should, and hopefully to you, it's like, who would do that? Like to me, the idea of, of hitting my own mother. <laughs> no. And anybody who, who thinks it's okay to strike their own parent has serious issues, serious issues. And they're a danger to society. Well, that's was dealt with very swiftly in this society. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So he'd be like, well, I didn't kidnap him. I don't know. I just have this servant. I'm not sure where he came from. You're going to die. You're involved in a kidnapping ring. You're involved in a kidnapping culture. You're involved in a kidnapping death penalty. And um, then verse 18, if men contend with each other, so they're having a fight, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die, but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall, and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. So there's a, there's a retribution in the sense of the guy's, his time is, he, he, he fully heals from what's going on. You know, he, he's, or at least mostly fully heals from it. And the guy has to pay for him for the time and the pain and the suffering and all that. Notice that all this money doesn't go to the court. It goes to the person who was offended. That's unlike our culture nowadays. It all goes to the court and you got to have a civil case separate from the criminal if you want any retribution, any, any, any recompense for what you've gone through. And then they have these inflated numbers for that. Um, verse 20, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. It doesn't say specifically what the punishment here is, but I'm going to assume that the punishment would be the death penalty because that was the punishment for murder. It just says he shall surely be punished. I think the reason is because in their culture, if a man beat a servant and the servant died, then it was like, well, no punishment. That was his slave. And so here I think it's elevating the rights of servants or slaves. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. Um, the, and now hold your judgment on this until we read verses 26 and 27 because it's gonna he's going to go somewhere else for a few minutes. And then he's going to come back to that. So I'll come back to that in a second. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. So the husband makes a request, the judges decide what's fair and he has to pay. But if any harm follows, so harm to the woman or harm to the baby in particular, this is specifically about the baby here. Then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The child comes out. The child has been crippled because these men fought and this and he hit the woman that got involved and the baby came out crippled, crippled the man. That was the penalty. The baby came out blind, blind the man. The baby came out dead, killed the man. How do you think God feels about abortion? Yeah. So um, 
verse 26, if a man strikes now back to a man, a servant, if so, okay, he wouldn't be punished because the, the, the guy didn't die, but here's what happens if someone is, uh, beats their servant and the servant is wounded, not, not just a, like a corporal punishment, but you know, abuse, right? Um, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. I like that. <laughs> so if the, if, if the abuse is there, this is abuse, man. You, you broke my arm. You knocked out my tooth. You blinded my eye. I don't really want you to get blinded or a broken arm too, because you're just going to take it on me later. Instead, this society would say, fine, they're, they're going free. And, and their servanthood was a debt servanthood. They were your servant for, it was actually more like a, a, a work contract where they were the, the Lord and the laborer. It was very unlike early American slavery, very unlike. So we should try to get that out of our minds. This is, this was much tamer to be honest and much better. Um, and it was something that you would go into typically because you had debt. But if the person you're in debt with and who is, you know, telling you what to do, he's the boss, he's the Lord for your, and it would be up to seven years typically. Um, and then he does, he abuses you. He, he goes free. The debt is paid regardless of what the debt was, whether it was a big amount or a little amount, they're free. And so that actually is a way to ensure the rights of servants in a culture that for many, many years would not stop having slavery. And so, um, I think that that ele greatly elevated human rights. So then we can go on. It, it, it actually talks about animals. And if an ox gores a man or woman to death and the ox shall be put, shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in time past, and it has been made known to his owner and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. This is actually, we have laws like this in our country. It's, it's called your dog is a known biter. You know, and so we, you knew your dog was a biter. You got this crazy frothy pit bull and you leave your screen door, uh, op, you know, your front door open and your screen door, flimsy screen door like that. And the poor mailman got mauled twice, you know, then you can actually go to prison or bad things can happen to you because of it. And so, so you get an idea for these civil laws. They were really, how does our, how does our nation function? What do we do when people break the law? How do we handle it? It's very practical. It's very pragmatic. And it would have created, had these been obeyed, I think a very holy culture, a very righteous or just nation. Um, look with me specifically at here. I want to get to one where people often attack the Bible is Exodus 22 verse 16. It says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed, so she's not engaged and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utter, utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. I have heard it said, the Bible says that if a man rapes a woman, that she has to marry him. That is a gross misrepresentation of what this says. First off, let's just recognize this is for national Israel. It's not God's determination on every human of all around the planet for every scenario. But this is what it says. If a man entices a virgin who's not betrothed, entices, seduces, they hook up. She is not being forced in this scenario. 
This is a this is this is two consenting adults. And she's not engaged to somebody else. So there's no husband to be to have accountability to. So you can't call, call it adultery. You would call it sexual immorality. So here's what God says to keep it to keep it pure. In a sense, it's a shotgun wedding. And he lies with her. He shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. So he pays the same, makes the same investment that he'd have to make if he was going to marry her. And then the father gets to make a decision whether or not this is good or bad. I don't know that the girl would be the best person to make this choice in that culture at that time. So the father, he gets a choice. If he refuses, then um, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. And so the, the guy still has some sort of penalty because you know what's going to happen now? She's never going to. She's now been defiled and she's never, this, this is never going to happen for her. This is the only chance, but maybe the guy's a really bad guy. And so the dad says, no, I don't, I don't want this guy anywhere near us. Fine. You're just going to, you're going to live at home with me and your mom for the rest of your life. That's just how it's going to be. But then he's going to have to pay and try to help us to support you. Um, and so the, the, it's interesting that when a man and a woman sleep together outside of marriage, both willingly in the Jewish law, it was considered more the man's fault than the woman's fault. That's what you're seeing here. More of the brunt of the responsibility falls upon the man than the woman. That's very interesting to me. So, um, so this is not rape. In fact, rape is handled in Deuteronomy 22. It's very handled very specifically. And it's a man forces a woman to sleep with her. And it's very easy how you handle this. God says, kill him. So that's rape, specifically handled in Deuteronomy 22. This is a verse often quoted out of context. People like to quote the Old Testament out of context to try to stumble Christians because, let's be honest, there's so much content here that sometimes you're not familiar with that passage. You're not familiar with that verse. And so it takes you a minute to go, wait, huh, what? Also, verse 18 of Exodus 22, it says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. <clears throat> Some people say, well, see, the Old Testament teaches that sorcery is real. That's not what it said. It said, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. I don't think that witchcraft is typically what witchcraft people think it is, but there are genuinely witches in the world. I have met them. They have a whole section at Barnes and Noble. No joke. I don't know if you noticed it. <laughs> There's a whole section on witchcraft and what stones to use and what chants you can use. There's actually Wicca for dummies. It's there. Now, do I think that their chanting and their stones are doing what they think they're doing? No, but, but I would say they're still witches because they're, they're attempting to practice these behaviors and all that other stuff. Well, in Israel, if someone was doing this sort of thing, God says, slay them. Do not allow them to live in this nation doing these things. Now, of course, this person has an option to leave the country, but you cannot be here and practice that behavior. That's how it is for the Jew. That's how it is for Israel. So someone would say, well, if you're, if you're a, a good Christian, then you have to go around killing all the people who believe in this or do that. No, this is a law for national Israel. And you see how many of the accusations against the Old Testament are just so utterly out of context and so distorted as though this law were written to all people for all time and all places, as opposed to the context it actually has for Israel um, as a national law. Then verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only, he shall surely or shall utterly shall be utterly destroyed. That is, again, in Israel, in national Israel, that's to take place, not everywhere on earth. Um, <clears throat> verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
That is an amazingly wonderful law, especially for the time. You're, you're to be kind to strangers, foreigners. That's foreigners, by the way. People who are illegal immigrants. People who bust into your country through the borders and they come in and you're going to try to give them like such a hard time just because they're not like you. God actually commanded the Jews not to do that, but to be kind to them. That's pretty cool. It's a just law. It is a just law. Um, you shall not, verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. God has a special heart for the, for the mom who has lost her husband, um, for the widow, for someone who's lost their husband, as well as for a child who has lost a parent, especially a father. Why especially a father? Because especially in that culture, and let's be honest today as well, it's two things. More often, it's the father that's not in the home than the mother. And it is especially hard to live life without that father figure in your life. It really sets you back. I know. It's taken me years to try to add into my life the things that a father would have added into my life had I grown up with one. Then he adds a threat. He says, verse 23, if you afflict them, the widow, the fatherless, I think this includes the stranger, and they cry out all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot. This Old Testament way of saying it will make me really angry. I mean, that's what he's saying. My wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Why does he say with the sword? Because God's telling them, I'll use the nations around you to come in and have military victory over you. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. The ironic justice of God. Um, then he says this, if you lend money to any of my people, the Jews who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Banks in Israel were not to charge interest if they chose to loan money out to somebody who was poor. They're like, yeah, I don't have enough money to pay my bills. I need to, I need to use the credit card just to get groceries. Then there'd be, it would be the credit card company back then, if they had one, <laughs> would be required by law to say, okay, no interest. You still owe us the money back, but no interest. No 18% interest. It was a just society. There were special provisions for the poor as well, as well as the fatherless and the widow and the stranger and the foreigner. So what I'm trying to show you is that the law is good. The law was healthy. The law was helpful. Anyway, it, it goes on and, and we could keep reading, of course, but the, this is a sample of the civil laws. And I just want you to remember, they can only be enforced with a judge, with a court and with eyewitnesses. So it wasn't like the old Monty Python scene. She's a witch. How do you know she's a witch? She turned me into a newt. They look at the guy. He's, uh, I got better. And there's no real evidence. And it's, a, it's, it's what they call it, a kangaroo court. You know, it's the idea that they're just being thrown through the, this sham of a justice system with accusations. There had to be eyewitnesses. There had to be evidence. There had to be proof. But once it was established, they didn't sit on death row for 15 years with a thousand appeals. It was swift justice. It was swift justice. And so, um, obviously I, I have some opinions about, <laughs> about, about our society, but this isn't about our society. This is how the Jewish Israeli society was run and what was to be run 
according to God's laws. It was protective over the widow, the fatherless, the stranger, the poor, and it was strict against those who broke the law. And that was the nature of the society. It was actually a very good thing. Um, the ceremonial laws, the third category, the last category, these laws are, I think, largely, you might think of them as religious laws, and they're largely concerned with things like being clean or being unclean. We, we start the ceremonial laws, I think, in Exodus 24, later on in the chapter, verses 12, and you keep reading. Um, but it goes all the way through, um, and Leviticus especially is very much about this. In fact, Leviticus is the book about the Levites or those who would be administering these uh, many of these ceremonial laws. Um, the tabernacle is wrapped up in these ceremonial laws. In fact, the tabernacle was where God would actually be in their midst. This is the location. Here's God's house. They actually called it God's house. And this is where God will dwell in their midst. Over 50 chapters of the Bible are devoted to the tabernacle and how it would be built. That's a lot. That is a great deal. And I think the reason is Jesus. And maybe we'll have time to we'll get into a little bit of detail on that. I'm not going to do it extensively. I just want to do an overview. Um, but that was the very center of Israel. This was the direction of worship in Israel. It was all everything kind of flowed to the tabernacle. It flowed there. This is where sacrifices would take place. This is where atonement would take place. This is where the feasts would take place. This is where forgiveness would take place. This is where God's presence would happen. So it was all, in fact, as they traveled, they literally encamped around the tabernacle. And so um, big deal, this tabernacle. Also, we'll read about the Levites. They were the priests or the, uh, the there was a Levitical priesthood. The Levites were the sons of Levi, one of Jacob's kids, Levi. And then his descendants were considered all part of the priesthood, this whole tribe of Israel. But Aaron, who was a Levite, he was a son of Levi, but his kids were considered the Aaronic priesthood. So within the Levitical priesthood, there were some Levites that were also sons of Aaron, and they had the potential to become a high priest, and they were also the ones who would work in the actual tabernacle. They would, they would actually go inside. Um, and so that's what the Aaronic priesthood is. So, the, it's, so the, an Aaronic priest is a Levitical priest with extra responsibilities. It's kind of like there's a pastor, then there's a senior pastor, you know, extra responsibilities there. <clears throat> The issues of being uh, uh, a, a high priest or a priest, the idea there is you're a mediator. You're the, you're one who goes between God and man. And it's in a sense, with one hand, you grab hold of the Lord. And with the other hand, you grab hold of man and you seek to bring the two together. That's what the priest did. Here's the presence of God. Here's the people of God. Here's the priests of God in between the two. The people bring a sacrifice. The priests offer it to the Lord. The kings would go to the priests and say, hey, priest, will you inquire of the Lord for me? I need advice from God. And the priest would go to the Lord, inquire of God, come back with an answer to the king. And so they were the go-between. They were the mediator between God and man because man couldn't just freely go to God. So that might seem strange to you because you're not part of the same covenant. You're part of a new covenant. <laughs> but that's how it was. Um, there was a lot of obsession with clean and unclean. Things being clean, things being unclean. There was a lot of discussion about hand washing, eating certain foods, no, no shellfish, no pork, nothing that was found dead, so no roadkill surprise. 
You couldn't handle things like mold or things that had, in fact, the, the term the Bible uses is leprosy. Now that term leprosy was referred not only to various skin diseases. Now we think of a specific type of disease when we say leprosy, but in the Old Testament, it's a word meant to apply to a whole variety of different stuff. If there was a lot of mold on the house, they would say the house had leprosy. You know, so it was, the term was not used the same way we use it nowadays. So that's healthy to know that. Um, and then they had full on, uh, descriptions of how to handle if the mold looks like this, deal with it this way, wait this long, come back, check it again. If it's this way, then you're okay. They can move back in. If it's not, then you got to tear the whole house down and move, and move all the stones out of the, out of the town. And what's interesting is all these things like handling a dead body, um, staying away from, uh, uh, poop basically. <laughs> and, um, all this sort of stuff, it actually made the Jews very healthy. When the Black Plague hit Europe, reportedly, it hit the Jews at like less than half the rate that it hit other cultures, like Christians or who weren't obeying these uh, these Old Testament laws, as well as other groups that just didn't have the same sanitary rules. The Jews were protected because they obeyed these laws about cleanliness and and uh, and they just honored God in it, and so they were guarded. Pretty cool. When you think about it, God was, I mean, a lot of these things, shellfish, pork, we know now that these things have much higher risk of disease. And so I think they taste great. But now we do things like cook it this way, cook it that way, da, 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 da. Uh, but it would obviously protect a culture to abstain from it entirely. Now, they weren't only about um, sanitary health, but they did in addition to being about just clean and unclean. It also, a lot of it, you could see how it promoted sanitary health. Somebody had, somebody bled, then they were not to be touched by anybody for this length of time. And, you know, after they stopped bleeding and if they were continually bleeding, they should, nobody could touch them. And if they did, then that person was unclean for a period of time. So you can see how like certain diseases just wouldn't spread. <clears throat> In addition to the clean and unclean issue, which, which really speaks of um, you need to be clean to approach God, then there was sacrifices and offerings. And the sacrifices and offerings were really how God was to be worshipped. And the Levites took care of this, right? Um, there was grain offerings. There was there were, um, let's see, uh, there's five sacrifices or offerings listed in Leviticus. There's the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And they're all slightly different purposes and used for different occasions. The most common one was the burnt offering. It was offered every single day, morning, night, at new moons, at festivals, at all sorts of different occasions. And the main point here is um, the offering's probably most important purpose was dealing with sin. And the lesson that they learned is that it's not enough to say, I'm sorry. I got to offer a sacrifice. Somebody's got to pay. Blood must be spilt for the sin that I've committed. Because of these laws, they were good. But the people, they were not. And so they utterly failed over and over again to obey the law. So they kept bringing sacrifices, sacrifices, sacrifices to try to deal with their failure to keep the law. And so that was happening on a very, on a daily basis. There's always smoke going up from the altar. In fact, the fire never went out because there was always something burning on it. <clears throat> there were also in the ceremonial law, seven feasts and these feasts, um, 
there were times where the three of the times, three of the feasts, they would actually gather at Jerusalem or at wherever the tabernacle was. Um, for the longest time, it was at Jerusalem. And they would gather there and they would celebrate the feast, like Passover, things like that. And they would all gather together and do it there. But there were actually a total of seven feasts uh, commemorating different things, like the Feast of Pentecost, uh, you know, the Feast of the First Fruits, um, just various, various different things, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles. And they're pretty neat to get into and, just, and, and, and see them. But whenever you're reading about a feast, know that it's one of the seven. There's others. And uh, each of them is actually pretty significant to Israel and in light of Jesus Christ, very significant to us as well. I think that what you realize, hopefully, through what we've discussed today is this. And this, this is, I think, the hard part we kind of plowed through. <laughs> so from here on, I can keep referring back to the law. But now it's like you can see a couple things. One thing is as a nation, Israel had national laws. These aren't things you you just sort of take randomly by themselves isolated. It's all part of a code that the nation was run by. It was only for Israel and it was never intended to be spread to every Gentile on the planet. There was no command to do that. When a Gentile came visiting Israel, the Israelis did not say, you know, like King Solomon didn't say to, to the queen of Egypt, hey, you need to take these laws back with you. There was, there was no, there was, yeah, they would tell them about their God, our glorious God, but they didn't say, obey all these laws. They're for us, not for you. And so that's an interesting thing to realize. Um, the reason why I bring all that up is because we're obviously going to be dealing with the issue of what do I do as a Christian? Do I obey these things? I'm oh, sorry. That's what Acts chapter 15, and we'll, we'll actually deal with how the New Testament in great detail tells us how to handle the law. But I don't just want to say, let's not be under the law. I want to also ask, Lord, you had this written for me too. So now as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, what do I do when I'm reading the Old Testament law? And I do think that there are some cool clues in the New Testament about how we should read and interpret and apply the Old Testament law into our lives. And um, I'll say you might be excited about this. It does require some creativity on your part, although I don't want to say um, fabrication. <laughs> it doesn't require that. But it requires you to, to think and consider what the scripture says. Sorry. Right, well, we've gotten through the hard part. <laughs> Because there's just a lot of information, and uh, and next we're going to talk about um, um, how that law is viewed in the New Testament, and what Jesus did that affected our our view of the law, and then of course how we can read those things and understand them ourselves. Let's pray, um, Father God. We thank you so much. Your holy law, it is holy, it is good, it is wonderful, Lord. And um, as we study it and read it, I think we find out that the world has sold you short, Lord. And they act like the Old Testament law. In fact, some Christians have. They act like this law was not good, that it was not holy, that, that they're, they're glad to be out from under it because they think something's wrong with it. And that is clearly not what Scripture teaches. We're glad to be out from under your law because there's something wrong with us. We fail. We can't, we can't do it. Your law is holy and just and good, and we just can't do it. So, Lord... We thank you for that, for the deliverance, Lord, from our own carnal issues. But we thank you for your holy law and pray that as we're in this series talking about the Old Testament law, we'd, we'd comprehend it, we'd understand it, and we would also um, know what Jesus did that affected the law, understand the scriptures, what they say about that, that nobody be able to attack you in our presence 
because of a misquoting or misapplication of the scriptures. And also, Lord, that we wouldn't set aside the Old Testament, but we'd be able to understand it, interpret it, and apply it into our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and thank you for thinking biblically with me today. Until next time, don't forget to check the context. Oh, 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 oh,